Well, uh, this morning I want to start by playing a game. Uh, this game's pretty easy. I'm going to call out the name of some celebrity, someone famous, from either current day or, or history, and you need to call out the one thing that that person is famous for. So for instance, if I were to call out Michael Jordan, you would call out basketball. Very good. Okay, I was hoping no one would say Hanes underwear commercials. Okay, that, that would be really awkward. All right. Or if I said Oprah, you'd say, okay, talk show host, good. Or someone who's planning to take over the world. You know, one or the other, okay? All right, so here we go. All right, our first one is Martin Luther King Jr. Civil rights, yeah, very good, okay? Second one, Billy Graham. Ministry, what else? Evangelism, yeah. I, did I hear someone say crusades? Uh, yeah, he was, he was known as an evangelist. All right, let's do one more. This one's a little harder. William Wilberforce. Yeah, yes. Abolishment of slavery. I did not know William's uh, story until I watched the movie Amazing Grace. I highly recommend it. It's really good. Uh, William Wilberforce was this uh, guy, young guy. He was pretty wealthy. All he wanted to do was be a politician because he loved power. He wanted to you know, be in the, the best seats and he made it. And then he realized, like, this isn't worth anything. Like, he, he makes, you know, parliament, and yet it just didn't matter. And what happened was he ended up having a spiritual experience where he met Jesus. It completely changed his life, and he began to see that people have value. And when he started seeing how slaves were being treated, he made it his life mission to abolish it, and he did. He, it took years and years and years, and people made fun of him. They thought he was going to ruin their economy. But he just said, these people have value. We cannot treat them this way. And he abolished slavery in England far before America ever followed suit. So William Wilberforce, highly recommend the movie Amazing Grace. Now, what if we just play that little game, but instead of calling out Billy Graham, William Wilberforce, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., what if I called out your name? Well, what would be the one thing that you would be known for? See, I intentionally picked Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, and William Wilberforce because what they were known for was their message. These guys consistently, over years, kept saying the same thing over and over and over. Now, it doesn't acknowledge the fact that they actually had multiple things in their lives. I mean, many of these guys, they had, you know, families. I'm sure Martin Luther King Jr. loved telling stories about his kids. Uh, you know, he, he loved his family, but yet that's not what we know him for as a husband and a dad. We know him as a civil rights activist. So let me ask you again, what would you be known for? Because your one thing would be what you put your time into, it's what consumes your thoughts. It's where your money goes. It's what you talk about all the time. So some of you, if you're a parent, your one thing might be your kids. Because they seem to consume your thoughts and your money and your talk and conversation. But I've known people that, you know, uh, baseball, you know, they, they love baseball. That's all they can talk about. They collect baseball cards. They go to baseball games. I mean, it's their world. And so if you were to ask them, hey, what do you think about this guy? The first thing they do is say, oh, he's all about baseball. That'd be their one thing. Let, let me shift gears for just a moment. Imagine as we did that list, as I, you know, with, with, did those three guys. What if I added a fourth guy on there? What if I had said... Jesus, what one thing would you call out? It, it starts to get a little harder. 
Because some of you are going, oh, that's easy. I call out this. But someone else is going, well, wait, no, I, I think this would be his one thing. Some of us would say, oh, son of God. I mean, this is easy. Someone else is going, oh, I, I would have said Messiah. And someone else is going, oh, I just thought he was like a really good rabbi, you know, a really good teacher. But yeah, he lived probably 30 years of his life first working as a carpenter. You know, like we could call out all these things. And someone else would be going, wait, 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 you're denying his death and resurrection. I mean, no one else has really pulled that off. Right? So what is Jesus's one thing? Well, maybe that the reason we know Billy Graham's one thing is because of his consistent message. Maybe we can learn Jesus's one thing by looking at his message. Because believe it or not, there is a consistent message that Jesus taught over and over and over as revealed in the scriptures. And as we look at that one thing, it might just affect our one thing. That's what we're going to look at today. So Heavenly Father, as we come into the, the scriptures, I pray you would help it to speak clearly to us what the message of Jesus was about. And as we look at that message, we would see him very clearly and that his one thing would become our one thing, that he would become what we are about. So Lord, I just pray right now for everyone listening, no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey, that you would speak to them right now and you would draw them yet closer to Jesus and that today they would walk out knowing what his one thing was and that it might even become their one thing. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, uh, whether a digital one or a paper one, open it up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, but you have a smartphone, we highly recommend you download one. Uh, there's several free versions out there. We tend to recommend the YouVersion Bible app, merely because it has multiple translations. Uh, if you if you would prefer a paper copy like me, you want to go old school, we've got a couple of different translations back on our table. Just catch me afterwards, and I'll help you get the right translations that's going to help you get into God's Word and really begin to read and make this a regular part of your life. All right, the book of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It is written by a guy named John Mark. We learn a little bit about John Mark's story in the book of Acts. The primary story that we know about John Mark is that he traveled around with the famous Paul. Many of you have heard of the Apostle Paul. And Paul and Barnabas, for a while, were teamed up together and traveled around. And John Mark was one of those who went with them. But something happened. We don't know the details. But something caused John Mark to just be like, I'm not doing this anymore. We don't know if it became too hard, if he became homesick, if he became disillusioned. He ended up leaving, and he abandoned them. Well, I'm assuming that there must have been some sort of repentance on John Mark's part because he wanted to come back and join them. And Paul says, no way. We're not, I'm not letting this guy come. He abandoned us. We're not letting him join us again. He's unreliable. And Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement, is like, come on, Paul, we got to let the guy, we got to encourage him. Let's, let's include him. It became such a contention point that Paul and Barnabas got into an argument over and they split and went different ways. Barnabas took John Mark and they headed off to go do ministry. And Paul says, Silas, I like you. You're coming with me. Let's go. Now, I'm grateful that Barnabas saw more in John Mark than Paul did. Because it's John Mark that God then used to write the gospel of Mark. Tradition holds that after Barnabas had spent a lot of time with John Mark, that John Mark ended up kind of saddling up next to the apostle Peter. And he really got to know Peter. And so what we have in the gospel of Mark is actually more of the telling of Peter's side of the story of Jesus. Because you tend to see more of Peter in this book than in any of the other gospels. 
But some scholars believe that John Mark actually went to Peter where Peter was in prison. And at any moment, Peter was going to be executed. And so, because they were in a hurry, John Mark just starts writing down as fast as he can what Peter's telling him. Because if you look at chapter 1 of, John, of, of, of the Gospel of Mark, he covers in one chapter what takes the, the Gospel of Matthew about like five or six chapters. I mean, Mark is just running at a brick, uh, neck-breaking pace. I, you know what I mean. I said it wrong. That's okay. But he is moving so fast. In fact, if you start looking through it, just, you, and most of you haven't opened there, just start looking at it. You see, he kind of introduces you to Jesus. Suddenly, he's giving you a quote from Isaiah. Then he's on to John the Baptist. You see Jesus get baptized. He heads off to the temptation. That takes Matthew right there. That takes him four chapters. And you've just done it in half of a chapter in the book of Mark. Mark is like not wasting time. It's move, 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 move. And yet, he takes a moment to say, all right, Jesus is baptized. He heads off into the wilderness to be tempted. And then his ministry begins. And here's what he did in his ministry. He taught one consistent message. Join me there in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, just because we see this here at one point does not really make the case that this is Jesus's one consistent message. I mean, if you went and listened to Billy Graham, I mean, he wrote a book on angels, but no one called out that that was Billy Graham's one thing, right? So just because Jesus has said this once, it doesn't really prove the point. So I want you to see that this was Jesus's consistent message. So we're going to jump through some of the gospels here. If you're not as familiar with the Bible, that's okay. I'll have the scripture on the screen, even though on today, it's unfortunately a small screen. We never could get the big one to work today, uh, but hopefully you can still see it. But if you are comfortable, I'm going to invite you to flip with me. First, head to Matthew chapter four. Matthew 4. So Matthew is telling much of the same story as Mark. In chapter 3, he talks about Jesus' baptism. And then in chapter 4, he talks about his temptation. When Jesus comes out of the wilderness after fasting for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, Jesus begins his public ministry. And I want you to notice how Matthew states it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so we see the same message. But to me, that's not even enough. Uh, skip over to Matthew chapter 13. Here in Matthew 13, we see Jesus sharing a lot of parables. Uh, parables were stories with a point. Jesus would use them to draw out an illustration, to, to drive home a point. And notice how many times he's trying to make a point about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, look at verse 31. It, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Uh, down to verse 33, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Chapter, uh, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. Are you starting to catch on? That he had this consistent message, something he kept talking about over and over and over, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't just share it himself. He actually tells his disciples 
to share it. Most of us know that Jesus had 12 disciples. Uh, Jeff, last week in his message about the disciples of Jesus, talked about some of them. We knew he had these 12, but Jesus also had more than just the 12. There was often many people that would gather around. Some would stick with them longer than others. But there's one point where Jesus actually sends out 72 Not just 12, 72, and he sends them out in pairs. And in Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus giving them instructions on what to do when they enter into these various towns. All right, so join me, Luke chapter 10, Luke 10, and we're going to start in verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you, but... Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So whether the town accepts or rejects the disciples, the message is the same. Jesus was teaching all about the kingdom of God, that it was at hand. And now he says to his disciples, I want you to go do the same thing. Many of these towns, Jesus was going to be coming to himself. And so they were kind of preparing the way. And they were supposed to come in and share about the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' message. He shares it over and over and over. And so if this is his one thing, I think we need to understand it. So what I want us to do today is I want us to go back to Mark chapter 1 and let's look at that passage there in verse 15 and we're going to break it apart and we're going to really dig deep into it. So Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Let me just read it again. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we have here are two declarative statements and two commands. And we're going to walk through them phrase by phrase. So let's start with the first phrase there. The time is fulfilled. I've shared the story many times of uh, my kind of call, if you will, into church planting and starting a new church. It was in 2008, uh, and I've shared how it was kind of a disturbing moment because I really liked my life. And so when I sense God calling me to this, I'm like, no way. I, I'm not doing this. Um, so obviously I lost that battle. But there did come a time when I actually was happy at, at this idea. I, I wanted to do it. And, and Leanne and I, we got really excited. And so finally we're just like, okay, this is what God wants to do. We're going to go. Let's Let's go. But then some things happened that just kept delaying and preventing it from happening. And we ended up taking two years of doing nothing but praying, of having conversations late into the night, of listening to podcasts and reading books about church planning, of trying to have conversations. We wanted to do this, but it just wasn't working out because the time wasn't right. Now, My story is really not that unique. I mean, maybe it's unique because it has a church planting bent. That doesn't happen to tons and tons of people. But yet, the chances are, you've had a conversation, or maybe even lived this yourself, where you know, like, I wanted to do this, but the time just wasn't right. I I hear this in dating relationships or or marriages all the time, where, you know, maybe they knew each other in high school, and, and they just couldn't stand each other, but then they head off in different directions, and they come back, and all of a sudden where have you been my whole life? You know, and and it just works out. The time was finally right. 
Or, or you'll hear about movies where, where there was some story that was written and, and some director would get a big vision for it. But yet either the technology just wasn't there or he couldn't get the right you know, actor or, or maybe there were just various factors. They couldn't get the money and it just wasn't the right time. But then later time passes and then they realize now's the time. The time is right. That's what Jesus is saying here. When he says the time is fulfilled, he's saying the time has now come. This is the right time. Now, why is he saying this? Well, if you've been with us since January, when we've been doing this His Story series, we've been seeing over and over and over through the Old Testament, all of these whisperings, these pointings, these prophecies about Jesus. And we see how he keeps showing up all through the Old Testament. But it was like it was saying, the time will come that there will be a true and better Abraham. Or the time will come when there will be a true and better David. The time will come when we will have a Messiah who will lead us. The time will come when he shows up. And now Jesus stands up and says to the people, the time is fulfilled. The time has come. The time is now. So that's the first declarative statement he makes. The second one that he makes is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let's take that phrase and let's break it into two halves. And let's look at the second half first. Let's look at that part at hand. There's a scene in uh, the Lord of the Rings book. uh, Sorry, the Return of the King, the third book in the Lord of the Rings series, where Aragorn shows up at the city of Minas Tirith. Now, this scene is not really in the movies. All right. So you got to be a real nerd and go and read the books to get this scene. Uh, Aragorn is the rightful heir to the throne. He's the, he should be the king. However, Gondor, the, the realm of men, and Minas Tirith, their capital city, hasn't had a king on the throne for like centuries. And now Aragorn is there, but he won't come inside and assume the throne. You see, Gondor is in battle against Mordor, and Rohan, a bunch of other men, have come down to join them as they're fighting against the evil Sauron. And they've just won one battle, but the war's not over. And Aragorn feels that it would not be right for him to go in and assume the throne. Like, let's put our energy into winning this war. However, word begins to spread through the city and among the armies that the king is here. Now, he's not there. He hasn't gone up to the throne, but yet he is. The king was at hand. That that phrase, at hand, means it's right there, but not quite. Like, like it's present, but yet it's near future. It's, It's in this and area. It's the now, not yet. And that's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom's here, but yet it's to come. It's, it's, it's already present, and yet it's at hand. But notice, it isn't just that he's at hand. It's that the kingdom of God is at hand. What is a kingdom? The Oxford Dictionary defines a kingdom like this. A country, state, or territory ruled by a king or queen. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about like the animal kingdom Right, a classification. He's talking about a territory, a realm that is ruled by a king. Uh, so that means we have to pause and say, okay, so then who is the king of the kingdom of God? And you'd go, uh, duh, it's kind of in the name, God. And I'd say, okay, yeah, you're right. But let's go a little deeper. 
with this. Because the New Testament fleshes this idea out a little bit more. If you know where Philippians 2 is, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this uh, passage, and he's writing to a church in Philippi that is really struggling in some relationships. There's some contention going on. And so to try and help bring unity, like a, a peace among the church, he's writing about this idea of humility. And to Paul, there's no one who's more humble than Jesus. Like Jesus is the perfect example of humility. So he's writing about Christ, and here's how he begins to describe him. So join me in Philippians 2 verse 6. Who, he's referring to Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's showing, here's the humility of Christ. He is God, the son, and yet he's come down to earth, taken on human form. But not only that, he's even made himself obedient to death. Can you imagine God dying? It's impossible. Gods can't die. And yet this God is dying. So here's humility. But Paul can't stop himself. He's got to keep going. Because of this humility, God does something. Verse 9. So therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a coronation to me. In the Roman Empire, when Paul was writing this, people were supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. And yet these rebellious little Christians kept saying, Jesus is Lord. And Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not just Lord. And he's not just Lord to the Christians who are going to bow their knee. No, every knee will bow before this Lord, this King. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The Jewish people knew that this Messiah that was to come would come from the line of David. David was the most famous king they ever had. And so he was going to be the true and better David. And so now you have Paul saying, he's the Lord, he's from David. It's obvious that the king of the kingdom of God isn't just a generic God. The king of the kingdom of God is Jesus. Which means when you stop and think about it, Jesus is one thing. His message is that he is king. Jesus' one thing is that he is king. But notice, he went about it in an incredibly humble way. He didn't go about it like most politicians trying to get power. He doesn't come at it like trying to put everyone underneath him. He just comes in and says, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And what they didn't realize is the one sharing this with them was the king himself. Now, because he is the king, he can give commands. And that's what we see next. He not only makes these two declarative statements, he next makes two commands. And the first command is repent. That word repent means to have a sincere regret. 
So much so that you're willing to make a 180 degree turn. So it's when you know, like, I've hurt you. I've said the wrong thing. I can't believe I did that. I am so sorry. I turn from the wrong I did so that I can move to do what's right. This past week, I had an unfortunate incident happen at a local business where I had a product that, that got damaged. And it, it, the product wasn't usable in that state. And the problem was that the employee is the one who damaged it. And yet, when I brought this up to the employee, the response by her was, I didn't do anything. And yet I'm thinking, I, I can't use this in the state. And yet I didn't do it. I shouldn't have to pay when you broke the product. And so I tried to just, you know, I, at Riverwood, we talk about leading with grace, but, but leaning on truth. I tried to lead with grace, you know, saying, I, I know you did not mean to damage the product, but something happened. And she tried to frame me as a liar, that I intentionally brought this in, tried to lie that she did it so that then I could get it for free. And I tried to help her see that's not the case. And I'm working with her. And in the course of the conversation, I said, I basically would like you just to show some empathy to understand and, and to even apologize and she looks at me and goes, well, I'm sorry. I'm not exaggerating. True story. Now, do you think she had repentance? Right, kids, I dare you to try that on your mom and dad. See how far it works. Because you'll say, I said the words. It's not words that we're looking for. True repentance is a sincere regret. It is saying, I did wrong, and I now turn away from it, a 180-degree turn to now do what's right. But now, why in the world is Jesus telling us to repent? Because he's the king who knows that we've been following false kings. Some of us, our false kings are our government. It's politicians we think if we just can get the right person in as either president or governor or, or congressman, that if we just get the right people in, then everything will go better. We just think it's all about power. If we just have these kings, then life will be good. But usually the false kings we follow are kings of the heart. For some of us, our king is our job. We slave away for this job as if it is a king over us. And we do whatever it demands and asks of us. Some of us, our king is another person. We sometimes want love and acceptance. And so we will do anything and everything for this other person. So even if it's unrealistic, we will sacrifice just so that they will love us. I've even seen this with parents to kids. They will do anything and everything they can to keep the kid happy. And it's almost like the roles are flipped. And now the kid is telling the parent what to do. Kid just throws a tantrum. Parent gives in. Child gets what he wants. Kid is the king. Kids don't try that one. Some of us, our king is an addiction. Where we will actually go and sacrifice things for the sake of this king. We end up staying so loyal to it. And we're willing to go to battle, even if it means sacrificing relationships, sacrificing money, sacrificing our health, sacrificing our reputation. You see, Jesus knows that the human heart was made for a king. And this is why he calls for us to repent. Because God created mankind back in the Garden of Eden, and he made them for a king. 
him. He was to be our king, and we would live in this relationship with our king where he would protect us and lead us and guide us. But when sin entered in, it took that good longing and twisted it. And we began to desire other things other than the true king. That is why Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. Because you are following the wrong king. And these false kings will always lead you wrong. You will have moments where you feel like you've won a battle, but you will always lose the war. This king can't win. It's a false king. Repent. Leave that kingdom and come to mine. You were made for me. Remember, Jesus gave two commands. The first was to repent. The second was to believe. To believe in the gospel. I remember when Leanne and I lived in Venezuela, we had a little baby Karis. Karis, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is 20 years old and married. Uh, so this is an old story. You know how old it is because I'm going to refer to VHS tapes. All right, That shows the age in the story. We lived in Venezuela and uh, we were working at a missionary kids school. And uh, we were just kind of part-timers there. We were only there for two years. And so what, we, what they did with us uh, when we first got there, we kind of lived in this shared housing. But then one family went back to the United States for a year, kind of a sabbatical. They sometimes refer to it as home assignment or furlough. And so they went back. And so their house was sitting empty. And so to kind of keep the house as part of the school, they would put other missionaries into it. So we lived in this house during Karis's first year of life. And back in their, their living room where the TV was, they had this lower shelf filled with VHS tapes. Now, probably most wise parents would like just remove the tapes, but being first-time parents, we thought we knew better. And so we're like, we're just going to teach her the word no. And so every time Karis would start to reach for him, we'd say, no, Karis, no touch, no. And she'd pull the hand back and then she'd start reaching out again. No, Karis, no. And the hand would go back. And then sometimes there would be repentance. She would turn away from them. But what I discovered was that just by turning, it wasn't enough because she's still right there. And sometimes the allure of the VHS tapes was too much. And she's right back at them. If you're like me, you've had moments of sincere regret. You've done something wrong. You feel truly sorry. And you even will pray to God and go, God, oh, I'll never do that again. I'm done. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, you, you do it again. You're right back at it. And you're sitting there going, how, how did I do this? See, it's not enough just to repent. Yeah, you have that sincere regret. You make the turn. But if you don't move, if you're right there, it's too easy to turn right back around and reach back for those tapes. What it means is you have to move. You have to take a step. You need to believe. Jesus tells us to believe. It's to exhibit our trust, but it isn't just to believe, it's to believe in the gospel. Too often we have bought into the lie that the gospel is what gets you saved, to put it in quotes. That, that you're dead in your sin, but, but believing the gospel, that's what gets you saved. Yeah, that's true. But Jesus doesn't stop there. It, it's, the gospel is what continues to lead us on through our faith. And so it's to continue to follow him. So it is repent of our false kings, turn away from it, and begin to take steps 
following Jesus. And it is through the gospel. The word gospel means good news. If you understand the truth that you are dead in your sin, but that Jesus died for your sin, and that sin can be forgiven, and then he gives you new life, that's good news. You must step out of your false kingdom into the true kingdom of God. That is good news. That's why at Riverwood, we define the gospel as the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the perfect and complete image of Jesus. Because you see, when you repent, you've turned away from your false king, but now God wants to usher you into his kingdom. And he brings you in through the gates and he wants to make you a citizen. He wants to make you a citizen of heaven. And so that means he's got to get rid of the old kingdom, the old mindset in you. And he does that through the gospel. So as you study the gospel, as you look into Jesus, you understand more and more of what it means for him to die on the cross and rise from the dead for you. It continues to lead you out and it does something in you. And you begin to look and act more and more like your king. You begin to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And when you start tasting that, when you start experiencing that, when you see how good this kingdom really is, you can't help but invite others to come into the kingdom as well. So Jesus is one thing. His consistent message throughout the Gospels is that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is the king. So therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you're here today, I would be a really bad pastor and friend if I didn't invite you to do exactly what Jesus says to do. If you have never made a moment where you have placed your faith in Jesus, where you have entered into his kingdom, then I want to invite you to make today the day. Step in. Now, it's it's not easy because it means you have to repent. There are things that you and I love that we hold on to. And Jesus is saying, you got to let it go. You've got to turn and follow me. But I'm telling you, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. See, most kings demand that you sacrifice to them. This king went and sacrificed for you. He went and paid your penalty. He purchased your entrance into the kingdom. But it means you have to repent and believe. Believe means just to put your trust, to follow, to walk, to step on this. So will you do that? Most people, when their eyes are open to this truth, they they merely express it in prayer. In just a moment, we're going to be celebrating communion, and there's going to be some space to pray. And if this is you today, then I'm going to encourage you to use that moment to just talk to God and simply tell him, God, I confess that I am a sinner. I have been following false gods. And yet you're now showing me that you are the true king. And so I want to follow you. And so because Jesus, you gave your life for me, I accept that. And I now give my life to follow you. In other words, just repent and express belief. But I also realize that if you're like me, you've had a moment in your life when you clearly said, Jesus is king. And yet, if you're looking at your life, you're going, yeah, he's my king, but I'm not letting him be fully my king. 
You can identify areas in your life where you're saying, yeah, I'm still holding on here. This person has too much sway. I'm being too influenced here. And Jesus isn't that full king. So I want to invite you to do the exact same thing. To repent and believe. The gospel doesn't just get you into the kingdom. The gospel is what continues to change you into a kingdom citizen. And this morning, I believe that God wants to do that in your heart and in your mind. That's why we're going to open up the communion tables. Because every time we come to the communion table, we are declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus. Realizing that that bread represents his body, which was broken for us. And when we pick up that cup, it is the blood of Jesus which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. As we take these into us, we say this story is a part of us. It is central to who I am. But we have to realize, God, I'm not fully living it. There are moments, there are things that I'm doing. The way I treated my spouse, the way, the way I talked to my kid, the way I gossiped at work, the way I, I, I looked at those things on the internet. We just have to pause and say, God, I repent. But I also believe, Jesus, you did this for me. And so I want to worship you, I want to glorify you, and I want to thank you for your forgiveness. And I want each of you that when you walk out of here today, you know I am forgiven. Because Jesus' one thing was that he is king. He's a king who loves you. He's a king who forgives you. And he's a king who invites you to follow him into his kingdom. So, Father, as we come to the communion tables right now, I pray that you would just be in this moment, that your spirit would be working. These are your people. You love them. You know their stories. You know their sins. You know their weaknesses. And right now, you're calling to them to come out of those, to turn away from their false kings, to repent and to follow you. Jesus, you are amazing. Under, reading this me- reading your story this week, seeing your message, and seeing how you were so different than other kings. You didn't stand up in a boastful way, even though you could have it. You had every right to. Instead, you just, in this beautifully grace-filled, subversive way, show us that you are the king So God, I pray that you'd help us to follow you. We would make you the most important person in our life and you would become our one thing. God, if I were put on trial for being a Christian, I want there to be so much evidence that the trial would be short and my damnation would be set because it would be so obvious that my life was about Jesus. God, make make me all about you. Help each of us to make you our one thing. That your message about the kingdom of God would resonate through our eyes, through our ears, through our words, through our hands. That everything we do, how we are with people, would impact them with this beautiful gospel message. So that's, God, why we ask you to change us from the inside out. So, God, we come. We come before you now. We kneel before your throne We kneel before our King, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. Let us come to the table.